at Florida State Prison near Stark, Florida, on October 18, 1983, at 7 a.m., Charles Dwight Messer was scheduled to die. Florida Stark Prison, Death Row, home of old Sparky, the condemned's final home before electrocution. In 1989, Florida's news and television media were allowed to tour the facilities in Stark. This was a one-time event. The media was never allowed inside the prison walls before, nor will it ever be again. I had the opportunity to be part of the group that was allowed access to Florida's most notorious killers. In reality, Florida has three death rows. 54 condemned men are housed in a special wing at Florida State Prison near Stark. The remaining 320 men are incarcerated in a building at Union Correctional Institution in nearby Rayford. A total of 380 inmates are incarcerated on Florida's death rows. 219 are white, 135 are black, 20 are of other races. They receive mail every day except holidays and weekends. Church services are available on closed circuit television. Inmates are escorted everywhere in handcuffs and shackles. Inmates can have a black and white TV, no cable, radios, snacks, and cigarettes in their cells. Visitors are allowed on weekends only from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Showers are one every other day. A day-to-day -day cell on death row measures six feet wide by nine feet long by nine and a half feet high. Three meals a day are served on trays at 5 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 4 p.m. The condemned are allowed to exercise twice a week for two hours in the exercise yard. I'm going to start with the time that the governor signs a warrant and talk you to through what happens. The governor signs a warrant, the general counsel's office will notify me. I'll get the individual inmate up to the administrative area where you came through Times Square, tell him about the warrant. Get some information from him, give him an opportunity to call his attorney and one member of his family. At that point in time, the individual inmate is moved from the stress housing location to one of these cells on the bottom floor of Q-Wing here. There are six cells. He will remain there until the execution is carried out or else he gets a state. A death watch cell, where an inmate is placed once the governor signs a death warrant. It measures 12 feet by 7 feet wide by 8.5 feet high. This was the very death watch cell that serial killer Ted Bundy occupied before he was electrocuted on January 24, 1989. The day prior to execution, the food service manager will come down here, get the order for the last meal from the inmate. He will, the next morning, the morning of the execution, will personally prepare that meal, deliver it to him personally, and be here until he consumes the meal. <clears throat> Conclusion of the meal, we will prepare the individual for the execution. That's simply bring him out of the cell, set him in a straight chair here, give him a haircut, shave his head, right leg, put the subject in the shower, showering, dress him, and put him back in the cell. He'll remain in the cell until I come get him at 7 o'clock if that's the time of the execution, and we go through this door behind me, going into the execution chamber. Counsel, I ask you one question. Sure. How do you keep the process from becoming dehumanizing? I know that's a crazy word to use, but, but without it becoming animalistic, if you would. Well, I don't know what your terminology animalistic is. I don't know of any other humane way you can do to do this 
But other than just to tell a guy looking straight in the eye and tell you that the governor has signed your warrant, the execution is set on such and such date at such and such time, and if that comes to pass the night before, I'll come sit down and I'll tell you everything is going to happen. And that's what I do. Charles Messer's case wound its way up to the Florida State Supreme Court twice, the first time on March 31, 1976. Now I'd like to begin with that court's summary of facts and their interpretation of the relevant issues being appealed at that time. Normally, I would describe his crime in full detail and then get into the court documents, but there's a reason I'm doing it this way, so bear with me. The following information is from the Florida State Supreme Court's first court opinion after Messer's trial and sentencing, and during this episode, I will quote heavily from that court document. On the morning of November 27, 1973, two hunters discovered the body of a male, 25 to 30 years old, in a partially wooded area called Garcon Point. Just to note, Garcon Point, and I hope I am pronouncing that right, is in the Florida Panhandle, way up near the westernmost tip of Florida, not far from the Alabama-Florida line. The hunters called the Sheriff's Department, and subsequent investigation revealed that the body was that of Henry N. Fowler III, who died of a bullet wound in the brain. In 1974, Charles D. Messer admitted to Alabama authorities that he wanted to clear his conscience about a Florida killing, so the Florida State Attorney traveled to Alabama. Once he was there, Messer asked for immunity for agreeing to talk, but the state refused, so Messer agreed to talk anyway, despite the refusal of immunity, and waived his Miranda rights. He told the state attorney that he and a man named Ronnie Brown, his co-defendant, were present when a third man killed and robbed the victim, Mr. Fowler. Messer then identified photographs of the victim and the scene of the crime for police. The next day, Messer waived his Miranda rights for a second time and made a second statement, which was similar to the first but with certain differences. Then he agreed to travel with law enforcement to Florida in order to point out the location of the crime, which he did on January 23, 1974. Then he waived his Miranda rights a third time and gave two more recorded statements. During this process, a statement had been taken from his co-defendant, Ronnie Brown. You know that old saying, the truth shall set you free? This is one of those cases where that literally applies. But I'm afraid not to Charles Messer. In the final statement he made, he and Brown had been traveling on the interstate highway. Messer had been drinking liquor and beer, and they stopped at a rest area to look for a bathroom. There, they noticed the victim asleep in a parked car and decided to rob him. The pair entered the victim's car, held him up at gunpoint, and drove him to several locations. According to Messer, at some point, Brown, his co-defendant, struck the victim and took his wallet and his watch. Then, Messer shot him once in the head. The men divided up the $120 in spoils, then disposed of the victim's wallet, personal effects, and his car tag. Charles Messer was indicted on February 6, 1974, for first-degree murder. Ronnie Brown, however, got two concurrent 30-year sentences and was out on parole in less than 10 years, which may explain why, around the time Darlene Messer was killed, the newspapers were reporting that Charles Messer would soon be out on parole. I believe that he thought he might be. The courts, however, thought otherwise. 
The trial itself had not been uneventful. First, his defense made a motion to suppress Messer's confession, which was struck down by the trial court early on in December of 1974. Then the trial began. On the second day of trial, Messer moved for a mistrial on the grounds that two deputies who were witnesses went to lunch with the jury. That motion was denied after a court investigation revealed that no discussion about the case occurred between the deputies and the jurors. Now, I've got to say, this is some highly irregular bullshit, and I can't see that flying today. It shouldn't, anyway, and most deputies would know that you don't have lunch with jurors during a trial. Frankly, I think a 12-year-old hopped up on cotton candy and Red Bull would know that. It was a highly irresponsible choice for the deputies to make. It could have thrown the case, and at the very least, it showed poor judgment. But the trial soldiered on. The next hiccup occurred during the closing arguments when the victim's mother had an emotional outburst and was removed from the courtroom. The weird thing is, Charles Messer's attorney didn't object. He kept right on going with his closing statement, saying, quote, That's what we're dealing with right there. A boy's dead and I want someone to die. It's the same total disregard for life and breath that God gives that led Charles Messer to kill an innocent man in the wilderness. Messer's attorney then asked for a break, and the court recessed for lunch. When everyone returned to the courtroom, his attorney continued his closing argument, still never raising a legal objection to the outburst of the victim's mother. He merely continued, folding it into his narrative like one does when you're talking and you suddenly get a case of the hiccups. Now, just before we broke for the lunch and recess, the lady that I think you know who she is, because of the questions that were asked of you before we selected the jury that's in the box now, there was an outburst, and the court has offered to give you an instruction to disregard it because you are not to consider it. That's not something you should consider under the law and instructions of the court. I made a comment just before we broke, and I feel that we have to go back to that comment to pick up the continuity of where I was at. What we saw there, what was taking place with that lady, is exactly what's involved in whether or not this community is going toward the execution of this defendant. It's called revenge. And that's the point I was trying to make when we had the difficulty before. Further on during the course of the trial, Charles Messer's public defender was allowed to put into the record, but not before the jury, the fact that Messer's co-defendant, Mr. Brown, had entered a plea of guilty to second-degree murder and had been sentenced based on that charge, while Messer himself, essentially guilty of the same crime, was charged with first-degree murder. But again, although it was put on record, the jury wasn't allowed to hear that, and you should probably remember this because it comes up on appeal, among other things. After the jury found Messer guilty as charged, the court wanted to begin the advisory sentencing hearing the following morning. Messer's attorney objected on the grounds that he hadn't had sufficient time to prepare for a, such a hearing, but his objection was overruled. The next morning, the first issue they took up was the outburst by the mother of the victim. The judge held a special hearing regarding whether the jury had heard the comments of the mother when she made her outburst. Three witnesses were examined under oath. The judge was apparently satisfied that the outburst from the mother of the victim would not be an issue, and so they pressed on. Next, Charles Messer's counsel wanted to introduce into evidence at the sentencing hearing a demonstration with a metronome designed to show the jury the severity and length of 25 years in prison as, quote, a sufficiently severe alternative to the death penalty. This demonstration was ruled inadmissible 
irrelevant to the issue, and was not allowed into evidence. I can't even imagine how the lawyer was going to use a metronome to illustrate the severity and length of a 25-year prison sentence. What was he going to do? Make the jury sit in silence, watching it click back and forth for a full minute, and then say, So, there's 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day. Take 60 times 24 and you get 1440 minutes in a day. Seven days in a week times 52 weeks equals 365 days in a year. 365 days times 1440 minutes in a day and you get 525,600 minutes. Multiply 25 years by that and you get 13,140,000 minutes. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, now imagine what I just showed you 13,140,000 times. I don't even know if I got the math right on that, but I am fairly certain that demonstration would have been about as effective as a condom with a dime-sized hole in it. And frankly, the judge should have smacked the lawyer upside the head for even considering such nonsense. After all that was tidied away, the jury commenced to the sentencing phase and proceeded to deliberations, after which they made a majority vote in favor of the death penalty, which the judge accepted. Charles Messer was sentenced to die in Florida's electric chair. Then he appealed. Some of the same issues were brought up in the appeal, including the outburst by the victim's mother. The judge noted that even in his own prepared brief, the public defender conceded that, quote, there was no substantial prejudice caused by the minor incidents raised in the appellate's assignments of error related to the mother's courtroom outburst. The appeals court agreed. They said, quote, we are particularly inclined to this view in light of the fact that the appellate's counsel, in his argument, emphasized both the outburst, which apparently was not heard by the jury, and the revenge motive, which allegedly was expressed. Having taken advantage of the situation, the appellant may not be heard to complain of it now, merely because his argument was not accepted. But here's where things got interesting. Quote, We now turn our attention to the question of whether the death penalty statute was properly applied by the trial court during the sentencing advisory hearing portion of the trial. It's our conclusion that the trial court erred in application of the statute in two particulars. First, although there is evidence in the record of the plea-bargained second-degree murder sentence received by Messer's accomplice, Mr. Brown, Messer was not permitted during the sentencing portion of the trial to submit this evidence to his jury. We believe the jury was entitled to know that the co-defendant, Ronnie Brown, negotiated a plea of guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 30 years imprisonment. The court pointed to a case, Slater v. State, which noted that defendants should not be treated differently upon the same or similar facts. The court admitted that while Brown's sentence should not determine what sentence Messer should receive, the jury should have had the benefit of knowing what sentence Brown received before giving their sentencing recommendation for Messer. The court also took issue with the judge not allowing the defense attorney to present psychiatric testimony that established mitigating circumstances during the sentencing phase. Quote, Accordingly, we are compelled to the conclusion that this cause should be remanded to the trial court for the purpose of conducting another sentencing hearing before a jury and paneled for that purpose at which the evidence improperly excluded may be considered. It is so ordered. So, Charles Messer's case was sprung like a ball in a pinball machine back to the sentencing portion of the trial, which poses considerable problems because the sentencing phase while separate from the trial phase, is generally done by the same group of jurors who have already heard all the facts of the case, which are fresh in their minds, 
and upon which they rely in addition to testimony and evidence offered during the sentencing phase in order to make their determination. That couldn't happen because this resentencing order occurred well after the original trial phase and that jury had already been dismissed long ago. Thus, a special jury was impaneled for the purpose of making a sentencing recommendation. Obviously, both sides wanted to make sure that the current jury had the facts about the case to make an informed decision. The hope of the defense was that the result would not include the death penalty this time around. The hope of the prosecution was that it absolutely would. Defense moved to have the circumstances of the crime read from the statement of facts provided by the Florida Supreme Court opinion document that was filed with their decision, facts that I earlier outlined for you. And while they are a basic recounting, they certainly don't go into detail about the actual crime Charles Messer committed, did they? Ask yourself right now how much you know about what Charles Messer actually did to the victim. Think about it. All you know is that he and another guy stopped at a rest area and robbed and then killed a man. Not much more detail than that was given in the Florida Supreme Court opinion document. Well, the state vehemently opposed that motion. Obviously, it would be in their best interest to have these new jurors hear all the gory details the original jury heard, the ones that resulted in the death sentence in the first place, rather than a brief summary of sterilized events given by the first appeals court opinion. The state believed that they should be permitted to present the evidence of the crime as substantially as it had been presented the first time around at trial. And you know the last thing the judge wanted was to hold that entire trial all over again. But he understood that just reading the statement of facts in the Florida Supreme Court opinion was not going to cut it either. The compromise was that the state would be allowed to present evidence that related directly to the facts of the crime. So the second impaneled jury got the details that follow from the testimony presented. The victim's body was found by two hunters on the morning of November 27, 1973. He was dressed in a pullover karate jacket and green trousers. A pathologist testified that the cause of death was a bullet wound to the brain. There was also a laceration on the back of the head, indicating that the victim had been struck with a metal instrument of some kind. An officer who inspected the body at the scene testified that the cut was vertical, but the pathologist who performed the autopsy testified that the laceration was in fact horizontal and it was about two inches long. The pathologist said that the cut went through the scalp and penetrated the muscle tissues under the scalp, but did not penetrate or fracture the skull. He said that the cut could have been inflicted by striking the victim with a pistol, but a demonstration in court revealed that the only part of a pistol that could have caused such a cut was the sight blade and the way that you'd have to hold the pistol to inflict that wound with the sight blade while maintaining the leverage to make such a cut involved considerable awkwardness. The pathologist also testified that while the laceration could have been inflicted with a tire tool, as Messer had claimed in his confession, a blow with a tire tool would more likely have fractured the skull, in his opinion. A friend of the victim, Mr. Fowler, testified to having seen him on November 26, 1973, at his home in Alabama. They had traveled together to Louisiana for the Thanksgiving holidays, and after leaving his friend's home, Fowler was supposed to drive to Dothan, Alabama. The friend said Fowler had a little over $100 on him when he left, and he knew that in his car trunk there was a spare tire and some wrenches. The friend said that Mr. Fowler had been wearing a white karate jacket, which he was discovered wearing when his body was found. When police recovered the victim's car, the spare tire and the tools were gone. A sales clerk at the Western Auto Store in Bonifay 
testified to having known Ronnie Brown, Messer's co-defendant, since grammar school. On October 24, 1973, he sold a pistol to him. The state presented a written document of the firearm sale, which was identified by the clerk. The serial number matched the one on the pistol in evidence. Under the law regulating sales of firearms, the clerk testified that he was required to ask him certain questions, including whether he had ever been convicted of a crime, and Ronnie Brown, Messer's co-defendant, answered this question in the negative, and the clerk saw no reason not to believe him. The clerk also testified that Charles Messer was present when Ronnie Brown bought that gun. Both sides stipulated that the bullet removed from the body of Henry Fowler was fired from this gun, purchased by Ronnie Brown, and introduced into evidence. Curtis Golden, the state attorney for the First Judicial Circuit, was called as a witness for the state. His testimony was important in a few ways. He was to establish how many confessions Charles Messer had made, and how that all went down, as well as to explain why the charges for the co-defendants had been so different. He testified that on January 17, 1974, he went to Anniston, Alabama, to interview Messer. His original reason for consenting to the interview was to clear his conscience, he said, because he had knowledge of a murder that had taken place along the interstate highway in Florida. Messer asked for immunity from prosecution, and Golden refused, telling Messer that he couldn't consider that until he knew what the information was. Messer decided to talk anyway. Golden advised him of his constitutional rights and proceeded with the interview. In his first statement, Messer said that he, Ronnie Brown of Bonifay, and a man named Ray King of Bonifay were all together when King killed Mr. Fowler, the victim. So now we've got Charles Messer bringing in an entirely different person to the mix. Golden testified that he was dissatisfied with his statement because of certain inconsistencies between what Messer was saying and the facts of the case that he already knew based on the investigation. Messer had alleged that this third perpetrator, Ray King, robbed Fowler of about $8,000 in small bills, which made no sense if the victim's money was taken from his wallet and or person. It would have been impossible to carry that much in the pockets of a karate jacket, which is apparently where Messer stated that it was. So the next day, Messer was interviewed again, and this time he offered some different details, but he still maintained that the murder was committed by the man named Ray King. A Florida state crime investigator testified that he participated in the investigation as well, and on January 21st, he telephoned Ronnie Brown, who was in Arlington, Texas. As a ruse, he told Brown that he was investigating the sabotage of county equipment in Holmes County because he had reason to believe Ronnie Brown would have some awareness of that investigation. He told Brown that he needed to talk to clear things up, and he asked Brown if he would be willing to return to Florida for questioning if they paid for his airfare. Ronnie Brown came to Florida and was interviewed before Charles Messer's third interview, so they had the advantage of what they learned from him during Charles Messer's interview. Now, do you see how that story evolved? I set this episode up this way to illustrate for you how the details about the case from the first Florida Supreme Court opinion would clearly not convey how things really played out, nor would they convey how conniving Charles Messer had been with police in trying to implicate someone else for the murder he committed. But it gets even more interesting. The court opinion goes on to note that at the sentencing hearing, the state witness testified that Ronnie Brown had always admitted to participating in the robbery and the murder, but he never admitted to any act of physical violence against Mr. Fowler specifically. So here's where the court allowed the state to question Curtis Golden, the state's attorney, about why he ended up seeking the death penalty for Messer 
while accepting a plea of second-degree murder for Ronnie Brown. Golden said that he learned Messer and Brown met when Messer was in jail in Bonafide, where Brown's brother-in-law worked as a juvenile counselor. Golden took into consideration that Brown had not been involved in any other criminal activity until he met Charles Messer. Golden believed that Messer was the leader and Brown was the follower in the episode that led to Henry Fowler's death. Golden believed that both men participated in the abduction and robbery of Fowler and that both were equally guilty of murder in the first degree. He even believed that he could have secured convictions of both men for such a crime. But he believed that because of Brown's lower intelligence and education, he would have been able to establish mitigating circumstances under the capital felony sentencing law based on his subordinate role and domination by Messer. Because of this, and that Brown would likely be able to secure a jury recommendation of, and sentenced to, life imprisonment, and the maximum penalty for second-degree murder is life imprisonment, he decided to allow Brown to plead guilty to second-degree murder in order to spare the state the expense of trial. He did say, though, that no particular sentence or sentencing recommendation was promised to Brown in exchange for his plea. Golden said that he expected Brown to be sentenced to life imprisonment. Brown received a sentence of 30 years in prison, and the jury was apprised of the fact that when someone convicted of first-degree murder is sentenced to life imprisonment, he is not eligible to seek parole for 25 years, while the parole eligibility of a person sentenced to 30 years is profoundly different. Next, Golden discussed Messer's case and how he believed that the state would be able to establish several aggravating circumstances, but he felt there were no mitigating circumstances in his case. Brown also admitted guilt before Messer did, and Brown's cooperation in statements assisted in solving the crime. Meanwhile, Messer spent his time during questioning trying to implicate a third, totally innocent man. So that was all evidence that the Florida Supreme Court had the second time they were asked to decide whether the sentencing would hold up on appeal. Their opinion also went into the testimony of the clinical psychologists who testified. One concluded that Messer was of average intelligence, but that there were some indications of mental problems. His examination led him to the hypothesis that there may have been some impairment of the inhibitory functions of Messer's brain. But since he performed only a cursory examination, this remained only a hypothesis. Brown had also been examined, and it was a bit more detailed. It included intelligence, neuropsychological, and personal tests. The doctor concluded that Brown's intelligence was substantially below normal, and that he suffered from some possible brain damage. As to personality, he characterized Brown as a follower, a person who accommodates himself to the demands of others. Based on these conclusions, he gave his opinion that, during the criminal episode, Brown's capacity to understand the character of his actions was probably impaired, and he was probably acting under the domination of Messer. The other clinical psychologist who testified had records from previous evaluations done on Charles Messer, and it was revealed that he had been convicted of manslaughter pursuant to a plea of guilty based upon a crime that occurred in January of 1974 in Alabama, an entirely different crime, which occurred a year before the murder of Mr. Fowler. The clinical psychologist concluded that Messer was an emotionally stunted person with weak emotional controls, which break down under stress, and he had limited capacity to control his impulses. She characterized Messer's personality type as passive-reactive and explained that this means he tends to react to, rather than act upon, his environment. But on cross-examination, the clinical psychologist stated that 
Messer's problems of mental dysfunction were mild, not extreme. A third doctor, a psychiatrist, testified that he examined Messer for 95 minutes on December 13, 1974, pursuant to court order, and found that Messer was coherent and said that he manifested no dissociative thinking. The Florida Supreme Court noted that after hearing the arguments of counsel, the jury deliberated and returned a verdict recommending that the court sentence Charles Messer to death again. The Florida Supreme Court's second appeal decision affirmed that death sentence. They said that while the defendant believed the court had erred in allowing the state attorney to testify about his opinion regarding the co-defendants and why Brown was charged differently, the court believed that it was within the discretion of the trial court to allow the state to explain to the jury, through the testimony of the state attorney, the reasons for the seemingly disparate treatment. Having provided careful review of the sentencing trial and the court's findings, they said, we affirm the sentence of death. It is so ordered. Charles Messer was condemned to death again, and his sentence affirmed by Florida's highest court in June of 1981. Despite another appeal, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear the case in May of 1982. You look like a man I knew once or twice So pale, so lovely Your eyes black like ice You look like a man I've seen Oh, we're not done. Did you think we were done? Oh, no. Charles Messer got a new lawyer, and in October of 1983, he filed a motion for post-conviction relief under the Florida Rules of Criminal Procedure. It took two years, and the case wound its way further up to the United States Court of Appeals, 11th Circuit, Federal Court. On January 2, 1985, the District Court granted the writ of habeas corpus and ordered another new sentencing hearing. That's three if you're counting. The state trial court had violated Lockett versus Ohio by refusing to consider non-statutory mitigating evidence when imposing the death sentence and concluded that Lockett had been violated in both the jury phase and the sentencing phase by the judge. The Florida Supreme Court had recently made it very clear that jury recommendation is an integral part of the Florida death sentencing scheme. And when a jury recommendation is infected with a locket violation, then the entire sentencing process is tainted by that procedure. They said that in order to cure the constitutional taint, any new sentencing procedure for Charles Messer would have to include both a new advisory jury phase and a new sentencing phase. The 11th Circuit sent it back to the district court with instructions to enter an order granting the writ of habeas corpus unless the state, within a reasonable time, either resentenced Messer 
meaning yet another sentencing phase of the trial, or vacated the death sentence and imposed a lesser sentence consistent with law. Translation, you guys better fix this tainted shit. One can only conclude that the state was like, yeah, screw that, we're done. Let him sit in there for life. We've got better things to do with our time. So that's why Charles Messer, Darlene Messer's husband, sits today in the Florida State Prison with a sentence of life rather than on death row. 